Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MSX podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Samir Mehta. He's the chief of the Division of Orthopedic Trauma and Fracture Care at UPenn, as well as the medical director for orthopedic clinical research, as well as the medical director for the Biederman Orthopedic Lab. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thanks for having me. I guess I'm just start out by talking about your journey into medicine, why you chose medicine, and how that eventually led you into orthopedics. Yeah, I mean, ooh, that's a that's a loaded question. I think, um, you know, I think for me, I grew up in a family where uh, service was really important. My mother was a physician, and there was always an emphasis on getting back, contributing doing something that um, was important, meaningful. My mother would sometimes say, you'll always have a job in medicine. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it was something that was on the very short list of, I think, the direction that my family wanted me to go in some ways. I mean, you know, at that age, when you're young, you don't, you don't know, you don't know, you know, medicine, law, engineering, business, pick whatever, right? Or, you know, an author writing. And so I think early in my childhood, there was always an emphasis on this aspect. And I saw my mother as a physician and what she did. My father was an engineer. And so I think the combination of the two led me to medicine. Um, I think once I got to medical school, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I Everything in medicine was inspiring to me. At one point, I think I wanted to be a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon because ER was a very popular show when I was in college and medical school. And one of the lead characters was a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. And so I think I gravitated to every specialty in medicine. At one point, I think I even wanted to do psychiatry and OBGYN, not combined, of course, but separately. And then I even wanted to do like a combined med-peds residency. Ultimately, I realized that I liked working with my hands. I liked solving problems, patient-focused problems, and fixing things. I liked relationships with patients that were, I don't want to use the word transient, that sounds really wrong, but um, that were that were finite, um, that you know they, they had an issue, they could be solved, and then they could move on with their lives, and I could go to the next person. And so it came down to surgical subspecialties. And, and then it was sort of like, well, which surgical subspecialty, right? There's so many. And I, it was, I had done some research in neurosurgery as a medical student in my early years in medical school. And I found brain injury and brain really fascinating and how the brain could, might remodel. And I spent some time with our neurosurgeons in medical school. And again, there, it was grueling. It was hard. But what they did and when they had a successful outcome, it was impressive. That steered me to a spine surgeon named Randall Beth at the Shriners in Philadelphia. And I spent some time shadowing him and doing research with him. And it was spine was the marriage between neurosurgery and orthopedics. That's where I met some orthopedic residents. And I really took a liking to them, to, to who they were, how they were how they engaged with each other, with the patients and shadowed them, shadowed the residents. I took call with them in the main hospital and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And it was, 
it wasn't until very late in my, uh, it was, I guess it was late in my third year. I, it was essentially the last, the last few months before you had to submit your application is when I sort of decided that I want to do orthopedics. I had been gearing towards doing neurosurgery. So I had to flip my application letters of recommendation and even my rotations to focus on orthopedics and it, it worked out. And so it seems like that shared value of service sparked that initial interest in medicine. Um, how did you practice that early on before medical school? Before medical school, there was a lot of volunteerism in college. You know, we had opportunities where I was to um, engage in community service, engage in support staff, that sort of thing. And so it it was something I started doing then in college with some of the work I did on campus as well as off campus. You know, one of the important things um, I think is that whatever your profession is, um, it's important to engage in a in a volunteerism manner, whether it's with in leadership positions or on committees or working to to better what you do, but also better the people around you. Yeah, and I think related to that, last time we spoke, you mentioned that uh, you took part in several medical missions and wondering what's your experience with that and you know how uh, you're able to approach care using limited resources than you'd have a, you know an academic center yeah so I think medical mission work is really a unique opportunity that healthcare providers have physicians have in terms of the, the ability to go and deliver care somewhere else I think it's a very tricky situation um, I started doing it um, I my first medical um, mission trip to a developing nation was with a group called Orthopedics Overseas through Health Volunteers Overseas, which is an NGO based out of Washington, D.C. And it was to South Africa, and it was a very humbling experience. You're reminded how blessed we are to live where we do uh, and the resources that we have and the opportunities that we have. And I'm always amazed at the ingenuity and the resilience of some of the environments where these patients are and how they're able to persevere and to recover despite not having the, the same resources that we do. So that was my first experience. And one of the things that I realized at that point was this was something that I really wanted to incorporate moving forward. I think when you talk about doing service trips, um, there are a couple of different avenues that are a couple of things that need to be addressed. Number one, it is not a vacation, right? Some people say, oh, you're going to, to Dominican or you're going to Haiti or you're going to South Africa. Like I don't, uh, it's work, right? And it's, it's typically pretty hard work. And so it's not a vacation. And because it's not a vacation, you can't expect other people to take care of you. You cannot be a burden on the local environment. What I mean by that is, you know, in, in a resource constrained environment, you can't be the one sucking up resources. We went to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010, about two weeks afterwards. And, you know, the, the people who hosted us were tremendous. Um, but, you know, we, we were an add on, if you will, like, you know, when food was being prepared for everybody, 
you know, we were the ones last in line. So we, we did not want to be a burden to the people, to, to the resources that were being deployed. It can't be uh, coming in and, and you're a windstorm, like, you know, racing through and, and kind of sweeping things up. You have to fit into the local ecosystem. I think another really important piece is that what is your goal when you're down there? One of the, one of the concerns about medical mission trips or um, volunteerism is that it disrupts the relationships of the local physicians with their, with their patients. Um, you know, here's the medical missionaries coming in and, you know, they're, they're amazing. And our local docs don't know what they're doing. And that's not the case at all. It has to be a symbiotic relationship. And oftentimes you're working with the local providers to deliver care so that it's a, it's a mutually beneficial event. Obviously planning for these is really critical. You can't just show up with, you know, scalpel in hand say you know i have knife will travel oftentimes you have to bring your own supplies or find out what the local supplies are you have to be really careful that whatever you do can be undone what i mean by that is when you bring implants or instruments you know you can't assume that you're not going to have any complications right that complications happen in North America, complications will happen all over the world. Complications will happen, you know, as a result of trying to help, not because you're doing something wrong, but because that's the nature of what we do. And if a complication happens six months after you were there, who's going to take care of it? How's it going to be handled? Do they have the instruments or the implants to help undo or redo what you did? And so you have to be really thoughtful about what, what you're doing when you're in on these trips. The other piece of it that I think is really important is you have to have a skill set when you go. And you mentioned this before, recognizing that you're not going to have all the tools and instruments and implants and imaging and uh, support that you do here in um, industrial nation. You're going to have what you have down there. And so you have to have some ability to think out of the box. You have the ability to, to, to maybe change your plan on the fly. You have to be thoughtful about which cases you're going to tackle to begin with. I have been on trips where I have said, we can't do that. If we were in Philadelphia, we could, but I can't do that here and do it safely. So it does require some amount of knowing your limits. And I don't recommend that people do it their first year in practice or their second year of practice. Or if they do, they go with somebody who's more experienced, who can help make good decisions for them. I also think it's really important that you obviously know the environment you're going into. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, safety, um, recognizing that there's geopolitical aspects to medical mission work that need to be uh, addressed. Uh, the last piece of this is, and I, I hear this sometimes is, you know, what does it say like help starts at home or home, something like that. There are opportunities in the United States to do this, to do similar things. And people always say, well, why don't you just help out somewhere in the U S <laughs> I think there there are issues with things like licensure and where you can practice and what States. And so that makes it a little more challenging and harder to organize. Having said that, I think it's good to also make sure that you go with the team you go with people who you trust and who you can have, who can help make meaningful and thoughtful decisions with you. But my, but the medical mission work I have done 
is one of the things that I really look forward to. Um, and COVID really had a major impact on that. And uh, it's something that I also like to have my resident learners go down with me. So I usually take two fifth-year residents to expose them to the opportunity. And I hope that they'll carry it forward when they are faculty as well. But it's something that I think is unique to our profession and this ability to give back. Um, I think it's also an opportunity when there are <laughs> international events to be able to contribute in a meaningful way. How do you go about expanding your impact beyond your presence there? Yeah, it depends on what, where, what kind of environment you go into. Um, for example, there's work that we do in the Dominican Republic. That work is really just patient care focused. There are several teams that go down periodically over the course of the year. And so team one goes down in January, team two goes down in maybe mid-February, team three goes down in late March. So they go down every four to six weeks. So there's a little bit of continuity of care there, right? Not quite as much as you would want, but at least there's some aspect of programmatic structural support for this particular region. And while you may not have an impact worldwide or th throughout the entire country for this particular geography, for geography for this particular area, you're providing some semblance of continuity of care. The other way to do it is some work that we uh, used to do in Nicaragua where we would go to a residency program there. And so where there we would, the way the structure was set up was we would in the morning go to the hospital. We would do uh, surgeries with the local surgeons and the residents where there would be some in-operating room teaching. We'd be thoughtful about the cases we would tackle and we would work till about four or five o'clock. And at that point, we would have conference with the residents for about two to three hours every night. Um, we would do cases, we would do sawbones, we would do some practice surgeries, we would have them present to us, we would go over challenging cases. Um, and so that's how you can potentially extend your impact is by engaging with teaching programs in the geographies that you might support and helping them tackle some of the challenging cases that they see in their region. Talking more about education, could you just talk to us about your experience with medical education at UPenn? You have a lot of uh, positions there. I was just wondering what's your approach to medical education? Yeah. Um, so for prob probably almost a decade, I was the associate program director for the residency program. And, uh, you know, part of the reason I'm, I, I am still in the role that I'm in, in terms of being at a university level one academic medical center is the opportunity to educate and engage with learners, uh, in particular residents and medical students. Uh, my focus is predominantly on residents. It is something that I think is really important. Um, it is something that keeps me enthusiastic about what I do and how I do it is, is teaching my craft. Um, I, I have a, a high bar for my learners. I expect a lot from them um, because, I mean, I, I remind people all the time, surgery is a high stakes game, right? There, there are no redos. You don't get another shot at doing something. There are situations where there's no turning back from, you know, a certain direction or course that you've gone. There's certain situations where you cannot fix 
a problem that you have created and you and someone else will suffer when you think about the fact that other human beings let you do what we do to them it is sometimes overwhelming and the the art and the craft and the science of what we do is really critical and making sure that you you as a learner as a resident um truly are ready to do that when you when you leave the residency and your fellowship is my slash our responsibility and so it's it's a bit overwhelming when you put it all together having said that it is what keeps me motivated i really enjoy working with my residents i think the teaching process is really it's hard to educate right um, i'm always reminded that I, my learners stay the same age and I keep getting older and it's a very unique relationship, you know, and in the rest of your relationships, think about it. Everybody's growing with you, right? you you have, you have siblings or you have parents or you have friends, you all grow older together. And so there's a maturation and there's a, is a relationship that sort of builds over time. Teaching is one of those things where as the educator, I'm getting older every year, but you, the learner, is staying the same age, and the relationship is temporal. So it's a very, it's a very unique relationship compared to all of our other sort of relationships out there that we have in, in normal life. I also think that it's residency is an interesting opportunity because it's both a job and it's also an education, right? So it's 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 like work study, right? You're there to be a worker bee, but you're also there to learn at the same time, and that those two things can be challenging to do. And finding that right balance, I think, is really important as well. Um, and I know that on trauma, when the residents rotate on trauma, it's it's busy. It's hard. We're a busy we're a busy trauma center. The bar is high. There's high expectations. We have to work efficiently. There's a lot of cases to do. The fire hydrant is always on. There's no there's no way to turn the off, turn it off. Right. There's no off switch. And so being nimble and being resilient is really an important feature of being a resident, you have to have some fortitude and some grit to be able to get through not just the orthopedic trauma rotation, but a five-year residency. It is not easy. One of my senior residents, when I was a resident, said to me, you can be good at two things during your residency. One of them better be orthopedics, right? You want to be a triathlete. You want to be a family person. You want to travel. All of that's great. But your focus has to be on orthopedics. Um, we were on a recruiting trip recently for my son. And one of the things that the coach said to him is, if you come here, there's three S's, sports, social, and studies. You get to be good at two of them. It was like, oh, okay. So that decision's made, right? And um, I thought it was really a very interesting approach uh, because it's true. I mean, your time is limited and the, the big thing about medicine in general is this concept of internalization, right? Medicine is one of those things, at least to me, and this may be a generational issue where your profession to some degree defines who you are and vice versa. I am almost 24 seven an orthopedic surgeon, right? I pick up my phone at all hours of the day and night. It is embedded in what I do and who I am on a day-to-day -day basis. I've, I have 
I, and maybe I'm maybe I'm the wrong one for not really figuring out the work life balance piece because I've always struggled with that. But it is important that I um, that my I think my family gets it um, that that piece of you know it's not just a job. Uh, it, for me, it's important for my learners not to feel like that. It's not just a job. If it's just a job, that's when it's time for you to step away and do something else with your life. There's a lot of weighty and meaningful responsibility in your profession. It's definitely not an easy one. I'd love to learn a little bit more about some of the characteristics of the people that you like to work with. Yeah, residency selection is really challenging, right? Because we don't, how do you know what you're getting yourself into with a, a learner who you're going to have to have for five years in a 10-minute interview? it's really, I mean, I, I, I laugh when I say it because I, I've talked to other um, residency program directors, other faculty, and we all lament the same thing. We don't do a good job of understanding who we're choosing for residency, right? Because I also don't think we understand what the end product is, right? We don't, there's no, there's no way to measure what makes a good resident right? Um, objectively, right? It, it's not, well, did that, how many resident, how many lawsuits did that resident have? Did they pass their boards? How many surgeries did that resident do after they graduated in their first five years? Um, how many publications did that resident have after they left your residency? I mean, these are all nice things to talk about, but did they really tell you how good a doctor is, right? Like, you know, um, you know, if, if, if the, if the resident does a hundred surgeries a year, a thousand surgeries a year, is it one resident better than the other? If the resident um, passes their boards on their second try instead of their first, does that mean that the one who failed their boards the first time is worse than the other one? None of these are actually direct markers of the ability to provide really good clinical care and be a really good doctor. And so I don't know how I don't know how to measure the output. So it's really hard to know what variables will affect that, right? Having said that, I think for me, there are a few things that matter, right? That I, I always say it's the head, the heart, and the hands for orthopedics. Are you, do you have the academic or cognitive ability to process all the information you're going to get over the next five years? You know, one of the things about orthopedics in particular is it's not just the, it, there's, the um, there's a, a medical aspect to it, right? There's also a little bit of an engineering aspect to it, right? You're reconstructing bones. You have to understand. I was an English major in college. So for me, I had to, learn that side of it. So having the academic aptitude to be able to get through medical school and residency, pass your boards. If you don't pass your boards, you can't work. So you have to have some baseline academic aptitude. Um, so that's the head. The hands part is also unique to, I think, surgical specialties. It's the psychomotor aspect of it. Can you take a drill bit and put it into a, a bone? Can you triangulate your hands and get a guide wire or a K wire into a uh, into a, a bone. Can you scope a knee? Can you do a total hip? Can you manipulate a limb and realign it? Can you put a, 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 a knot uh, arthroscopically? Um, you know, it's no different than being able to put your. You know, I don't know if you do any work around your house, but you know, last week I was I was trying to fix something and the screw was under the sink and I. I had to somehow get my hand underneath and also turn the screwdriver and not let everything. It, it, there's some physical psychomotor skill set that you need to do orthopedics. 
you could be the best um, orthopedic medicine person in the world and have a great orthopedic mind. But if you need to put a rod in a femur and you don't, can't put turn a screwdriver, that's a problem, right? That doesn't actually accomplish the task. So the psychomotor piece or the uh, hands piece is really important. So that's head, hands. And the last one is heart, right? This is the affective domain. This is the, um, uh, how are you as a person? How gritty are you? How resilient are you? How, how good of a communicator are you? What kind of emotional um, intelligence do you have? Can you relate to patients? Can you talk to them? Can you not piss off the nurses? Can you engage with your colleagues? Can you be a good teammate? These are all really important in orthopedics. Orthopedics is very much team-oriented. It's one of the things I loved about it when I rotated with those residents back when I was a medical student. I liked the team aspect. I liked the collegiality of it. But it does take some grittiness. And so these are the things that I care about. Now, how do I measure them? Huh. Good luck. Let me, let me know when you figure that one out. When If you can figure out that test, uh, you in the race, right? And so I think one of the things that I tell learners is if you want to be at Penn or wherever you want to go, rotate there, right? Do a rotation as a fourth-year med student there. Let them see you real time. Because over four weeks, especially if it's a hard rotation, you will find um, you will find breaks in the armor. And not all breaks are bad. It's okay to sometimes show people who you are. One of the things I tell fourth-year med students when they do their exit interview with me is it's okay to show your personality, right? They'll, you know, what the residents might say something funny or the, the OR nurse may make a comment and it's a funny comment about whatever. And, you know, everyone else is laughing and they're not because they don't think they can or they don't think they should because maybe it was off color or maybe it was, you know, um, uh, uh, something personal about the, the nurse, or maybe they were making fun of me, which doesn't, which happens more than once or twice in the day. And it's okay to be a normal human being, right? It's okay to laugh because at the end of the day, that person that, that, that you're taking is going to be with you for five years. These relationships, the, the, the relationships that you have in residency sometimes last longer than most marriages. So it, it's got to be, it's got to be a very thoughtful decision. And so one of the things I tell learners is spend four weeks, you know, do your away rotation at a place you're interested in. Um, because in four weeks, that rotation will either help you or it will hurt you. It will not leave you in a neutral position. And if it hurts you, that's okay because you wouldn't want to be in a relation that relationship for five years, right? If you didn't, if you didn't like them or they didn't like you, it's going to make the next five years really grueling. So everyone should it should be a, a marriage between what your goals are and where you fit in. And, and for me, they fit into our program, that they fit into our environment as well. So it's got to be a symbiotic thing. And, and again, it's nice to have that four-week rotation because you can, you as a learner can say, you know what? I really like these people. I really like it here. I like the environment. I like, I like what they do. Um, or you might say, you know what, I don't care. I don't like anybody here. I, I don't get along with any of these people. This, I can't come here. Right. So it's really important for you to realize that. So you can't go by the name. You can't go by the prestige. You have to go by the fit. If you do orthopedics, you will get good training. What you want to make sure of over five years is 
that you have a good experience. And it's not about, you know, do we get free parking or free lead or, you know, do we get free loops or it's about the education. It's the educational component of the program that really, really matters, right? As someone say, I someone joke around say like, you know, hotels aren't meant to be the Ritz Carlton. And if you're going to judge a, I mean, not hotels, hospitals, hotels aren't meant to be the Ritz Carlton. Hospitals aren't meant to be the Ritz Carlton. If you're judging the hospital based on how nice the lobby is and how good the food is, that's great. But does does that really correlate to the quality of surgical or clinical care you're going to get? And I think there there are some fantastic hospitals in this country where I would absolutely go get care when I mention that to people like, oh, you would go there? Absolutely. Because I know the people that are there and they are amazing. And I don't really give a darn that the food is awful or that the carpet is from 1972. Doesn't really matter to me because I'm not there to hang out in the lobby and have, you know, ding-dongs and ho-hos and, and a drink at the bar. I'm there to get care and get out, right? I'm, I tell this to patients all the time, like when they ask for a recommendation, hey, you should go see so-and-so, that surgeon. Is he nice? And I said to him, I said, are you trying to date the surgeon or are you trying to have a good outcome? And that's what really matters. And I'm not saying you, you want to be a jerk as a surgeon or, or a jerk as a person, but I am saying that you have to understand what's important in the relationship. And when you talk about resident education, it's about education, right? That's what really matters. And so you want to go to a place that you're going to get educated. Now that education comes with being also potentially having to work, right? What I mean by that is you may have to transport a patient now and then. You may have to do a blood draw. That's part of residency. Um, and I think sometimes I get concerned that I see the pendulum swinging to, well, we're just here to learn. Okay. Uh, you know, to me, learning and some of that service component are one and the same. The example I sometimes use is um, we operate sometimes late into the night and sometimes we don't have, you know, at nine or 10 or 11 o'clock, sometimes it's resource constrained. And so there are a couple of different options. Option one is we can wait for somebody from transport to go get the patient and bring them to the holding area or to the operating room. And that's going to take another hour. And by then we might lose our operating room because maybe there's another trauma that comes in or maybe the OR has to close rooms. And so that femur that you would have participated in and learned how to rot a femur, you won't get to do that. And that's a learning experience that you've lost on. I'm going to have to still do the femur. Like the, the, the work doesn't go away. Right. Or option B is you can help facilitate getting that patient from bed 462 down to the operating room in the next five minutes. And, and by doing that, you enhance your own education because you help participate in the care of that patient by learning how to put a rod down that femur. Right. In one scenario, you didn't do any service. And guess what? You also didn't get any education. In the other scenario, you had to do the service to get to the education. And I think that's a balance that some learners don't understand. Recently with the 80 hour work week, you mentioned a long time back that you did some work investigating that and into health policy. Could you talk about what your thoughts are on that and uh, as well as health yeah. policy? So um, one of the things, I think I mentioned this earlier, I think it's, uh, you had asked about service and volunteerism. I think there are different ways to give your time. Uh, one of them is to be part of your profession in terms of providing service to the profession. In our case, it's our medical organizations that we're a part of. Like for me, I'm part of the Orthopedic Trauma Association. I'm part of the AO Foundation. I'm part of 
um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. I'm part of the American Orthopedic Association. I served as president of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. These are not things that you're compensated for. These are things that you volunteer for because it's important to keep the profession moving forward and to, for lack of a better word, fight for the profession. Um, during my residency, um, I, I did the six-year program at Penn, which meant that I had a year where I did a year of research, um, basic science research. And during that year, because the time commitments were different than being a clinical resident, um, I also had applied to be an American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery Washington Health Policy Fellow. And so over the course of that year, I would travel to Washington, D.C., to Capitol Hill, and learn about that side of medicine, which was fascinating to me, the side of the lobbying and medical sort of oversight. And one of the things that was happening at that time um, was the transition to the 80-hour work week. There was a work group on Capitol Hill that Congress was looking at um, medical work hours. And so as part of my time on in my health policy fellowship, along with other subspecialty organizations like the Neurosurgical Society, the American Medical Association, et cetera, you know, we, we did some research and we looked at and engaged with uh, the Hill to craft some of the language and some of the data around the 80-hour work week. And that also spawned for me some research within graduate medical education in terms of the impact of the 80-hour work week on the learning environment in orthopedic surgery specifically in terms of the kind of specialty that people were applying to um, and also really spawned an interest in uh, being part of medical organizations like that, medical societies. It also, for a brief period of my life as a surgeon, uh, spawned a dramatic interest in health politics um, and health policy. Uh, I would say that I'm probably less in that realm now than I, than I was back then. And the nice thing is, is that there's others who are doing it, right? So there's that lineage that you create. I was the second health policy fellow. I think there were almost 20 health policy fellows until the program was, um, uh, for budgetary reasons, was uh, sort of fine. So that it's a little bit different now. But back then, it was a, it was truly an amazing experience and a, a formative experience. And I, I would tell you that if you have any interest in understanding that side of medicine, opportunities like that are ones that you should take advantage of. Along the lines of keeping the profession moving forward, you do a lot of work within research. I, I saw you also are part of a startup called Osteomics. Um, but maybe before we talk about that, how do you choose which new technologies and practices should be adopted into your own practice? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think new technology, you know, I, I sometimes joke around and say orthopedics is surgeons with toys. Um, and uh, it's hard not to be distracted by the new toy. You know, you get that toy at Christmas, you play with it twice, and then you never touch it again. Um, I think if you're going to use new technology, you have to really understand what the value of that technology is. And by value, that includes things like does it improve the quality of your outcome? Is there a cost associated with it? You know, just because it's new doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. And sometimes new just means more expensive with the same outcome. Sometimes new allows you to 
do things that you weren't able to do before. Sometimes new means there's going to be more complications. I remember there was a device that I was really excited about. It made sense from a science perspective, the, the mechanics of how it worked, the basic science research around it. It was something that was, I thought, made sense, right? So so there's that piece of it as well. Like it just can't be, oh, well, we've got version 2.0 and it's better than version 1.0. Why? Because we said so? Mm. Show me the data. Show me the science. Let me see how this makes sense. And how we understood how fractures healed, this new device that was put on the market really made a lot of sense to me. And I did a lot of, I thought, I thought I did a lot of due diligence around it in terms of my own due diligence, in terms of understanding the mechanics of it and the specifics of it and how it would go in, et cetera. Great. Um, it was a little more expensive, but it, it definitely, in my mind, and my understanding would change the outcome of what I would do. So this patient, patients may not need a second or third surgery. Great. So I went through the process of getting it approved for our health system. I brought, had it brought in and I did some cases. And I was probably one of the early adopters. One of the things I've learned the hard way is you let somebody else be the early adopter and you, you can, and once you have some outcomes, then maybe you, then you adopt it. Although that being at a place like Penn, you know, and what I do for a living, if I do that, that may not be the best decision either, but we'll talk about that. So I, I was one of the early adopters of this device. <clears throat> Unfortunately, as we started to follow these patients, six, eight, 12 weeks, three months, six months, there was a, a flaw in the way the device was designed. And, and that was not obvious until there was a time component to it and it was put in patients. Um, because all of the mechanical data was suggested that this failure mechanism was not going to happen. So um, the device was taken off the market and has never made it back. And as a surgeon, I was disappointed because I felt re responsible that I was, in, again, I didn't do anything wrong. It was FDA approved. It gone through all the correct processes. Um, and it wasn't like those commercials that you see on TV, you know, nothing like that. But I, I was like, you know, did I, did I do my due diligence to, did I miss something? And I think there were others in the same boat because there were a few of us that really thought that this was going to be a game changer. Um, so you have to be really careful with new devices and you have to find that balance of, is it really going to be impactful? Is it cost appropriate? Does it provide a better outcome? And is there enough of a runway with the use of the device that you feel comfortable using it? There's a balance between being the first person to put a device in and, you know, being the last to put it in, right? You don't want to be the last because by then, you know, those patients who you could have used it in, you probably missed the boat a little bit. And sometimes you don't want to be the first because you really want to not, you know, have patients who, you know, you're having the challenging case with because you decided to use a new device that is somebody's mom or dad or, or brother on the table. And so you want to be thoughtful about, and if you are going to use a new device, you really have to know it, right? You have to have done multiple practice surgeries with it so that when you're in the OR, there's no, um, there's no complications. Along those lines of adopting different technologies and risk management, I wanted to get a little bit of insight into your approach on complications. As you mentioned, surgery is very high risk and 
things can go wrong and have great consequences. And when those do eventually come, what's your approach? Because we hear about surgery has like quick outcomes, but what happens when something does go wrong? How do you kind of approach that? Yeah, I think um, complications are hard. Um, it's hard for everybody, right? It's really hardest for the patient. When I quote complication rates to patients and, and I tell to my residents, you know, oh, well, you know, the risk of this is only 1%. I said, you know, the interesting thing is if you're that person who's, who is the 1%, you don't care about the other 99%, right? Like it's irrelevant. So it, it's, it's 1% until it's you, then it's a hundred percent. Um, one of my mentors who's still at Penn, who's a phenomenal human being and a phenomenal surgeon said to me, the difference between an excuse and an explanation is timing. And so trauma is a little unique because sometimes I don't meet my patients until the operating room, right? I've had patients who they're in the OR. That's the first time I meet them because they have an open femur or an open pilon, or they had an, a head injury and neurosurgery took them right away. And now I'm, you know, in the OR trying to reconstruct their leg or whatever at the same time. Um, and so you don't have to, have, you don't have necessarily have the opportunity to talk to them about the, what could happen. Um, but in general, and had that conversation preoperatively is really critical in my mind. And that means that you have to really understand your craft, your ability to execute it, and also understand everything that can go wrong. Now you, you have to be realistic as well, right? You know, what I mean by that is, you know, you can list every complication that can happen, but you also need to be aware that there are certain things that are more likely to happen. And if you are aware of those, then you can work towards mitigating the risks that are involved. As an example, ankle fractures. Ankle fractures in patients who are diabetic, who smoke, and who are vasculopaths have a very high complication rate. So does that mean that we don't operate on any, any diabetic ankle fracture? No, um, because certain ones, if you leave them the way they are, are going to be much more problematic than what my complications could or would be post-surgically. But when I talk to a patient who has diabetes, maybe it's poorly controlled diabetes, who has an ankle fracture, I spend significant amounts of time discussing with them complications that are going to happen or could happen because of their diabetes and their ankle fracture, things like wound breakdown and infection and delayed healing. I tell them that um, in patients who are non-diabetic, maybe we don't want them weight bear for six weeks, but in, in diabetic patients, especially if they have neuropathy, we may wait as long as 12 weeks to let them weight bear. And I tell them in advance that their fracture may not heal, or they may get an infection, or they may end up with broken hardware, or they may end up needing a second surgery because, they're, because of the delayed healing that they would get and they have high risk for. And so when that happens, or if that happens at week 10 or week 12, they come in and their bone's not healing. And I say, you know, Mrs. Jones, we're going to have to do another surgery. They look at me and they say, you had said that this was going to happen. Okay. Like I, I'm not surprised, but if they had no concept of that, right. Then it's a, well, what did you do wrong? Why am I not healing? Right. It's a very different conversation. And so that comes with some experience, but it also comes with knowing your craft. Right. And so I, I use it. This is a very simple example. 
Um, there's something we put across the ankle joint called the syndesmotic screw for the syndosmosis when people have ankle instability. Some people choose to have that screw removed. Others choose to keep it. If you keep it and you weight bear on it, sometimes, most of the time, that screw will snap in half, which is the desire. The desire is for that screw to break. <clears throat> I tell patients all the time that that screw is going to break. And the, I, I tell it to them before I put it in. And invariably, when it breaks, many of them are like, you said that was going to happen. And they're almost like, um, it's like a magic trick. Like, you said it was going to happen. And it did. That's amazing, right? Um, but if you don't tell a patient that's going to happen, and when it does, trying to have that conversation after the fact, you feel like they're just looking. You've, you've, there's a little bit of, I don't use the word distrust, but that there's definitely a, an aspect of it where they're looking at you and they're like, do I, are you really telling me the truth? You just try to cover your tracks. And so um, really that piece of that saying that my faculty member, who's now, now my faculty member, who was my, my faculty mentor said to me is the difference between an excuse and an explanation is timing. And that holds true for anything in residency. Let me tell you that right now. When, when something happens with a, one of my residents and another resident or, or a resident and a, you know, ER physician or a resident and, you know, a, a staff member, and I hear about it after the fact, like I hear from that other person first, that reflect, I always tell the residents, I want to hear from you first. You better tell me before I hear from them. <laughs> Moving on to the future of fracture care, I uh, kind of wanted to know what you're excited about what's beyond the horizon, what's kind of the thing that you're most excited about? I think orthopedics has historically been this concept of heal with steel, right? Like that's been the mantra. Like you put metal in, patients get better, whether it's a knee replacement or a shoulder replacement or femur fixation or spinal hardware, it's heal with steel. <clears throat> I think that where orthopedics is headed is things like the use of robotics, the use of augmented reality that's happening in spine surgery now. They're using augmented reality to do surgeries. Joints is using robots, um, similar to what happened in neurology. We're using navigation. We are getting creative with our hardware solutions and using more minimally invasive techniques or finding ways to put, for example, curved screws in the pelvis. The pelvis is not a straight bone. It's a very, it's shaped like a pretzel. And so we have technology now that will let us put hardware into a pretzel. We are starting to understand and get a little bit better with some of the biology around bone healing and around infection management. We're doing more with personalized medicine. There's some really exciting stuff going on with phage, uh, phage treatment and phage technology for management of joint infections. So we're starting to stray a little bit away from the metal piece of it and more towards the biology and the science piece of it. Um, you know, there's a big push right now in personalized medicine in orthopedics. Uh, and, I mean, in, in medicine in general and orthopedics, I think will be a, a little bit of a later adopter of that, but it will come. Um, people are doing things like cartilage regeneration. Um, you're able to take your cartilage, grow it, and then put it back in you. Um, there's things on the horizon with injectables, managing things like arthritis, uh, and changing the course of the acceleration of the arthritic disease. So there's a lot on the horizon in orthopedics. I, I will say that I don't see a straying from heel with steel 
too much in the next couple of decades, but probably down the road, things will change. Um, but right now, we I think we're still a specialty that is very much going to be still operating for a long period of time. As we wrap up here, what's one piece of advice you would give your 20-year-old self? The one piece of advice that I would give, and I know we're in an era where people are talking about wellness and work-life balance, I would tell my 20-year-old self that life is a marathon, not a sprint, as is the, your career, but that you still have to maintain a level of professionalism and a level of dedication and that, you know, what I'm seeing right now with some of the generational issues, I don't, I don't know if everybody who wants to do orthopedics is truly cut out for it or, or medicine in general, right? I think there's a certain level of commitment and for lack of a better word, blood, sweat, and tears as required to succeed. And you, and you know, when you have potentially a learner who is not agile or resilient or gritty, it's a really tough road. And um, your patients still expect, there's a certain expectation from your, from your patients about who you are and what you're going to do. Thank you so much, Dr. Meadow, for joining us.